Six ways to struggle with your explanation of faults, defects, situations and environments. Welcome to the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast, episode 11. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I am Georg Lohrer, and this is the podcast about realizing and managing your projects within the Embedded Systems realm. It's where I give you the know-how and teach you the ways to succeed and overcome your daily obstacles and problems in project work. Do you have also experienced that you have to explain faults, defects, situations or environment to someone outside of the topic? Today's episode is about six ways to fail for sure in explaining. In the first part, I will show you the failing approaches, but of course, there is a second part. Here I will give you my way how to handle explanations gracefully. Let's jump into it. Let's imagine a situation where we have observed a fault, the defect, or something in the environment that failed, and there is some manager or other leading person coming along and Suddenly you are confronted with a question like, what's going on there? Could you explain to me? Or there is a request for a report you should provide. First of all, you should have in mind what are the managers looking for. There are three issues which are regularly in mind of managers. First, quality. Second, time. Third, money. These are the terms we are thinking in. So if you are coming along with technical explanations, this kind of explanations must be translated into quality, time or money. Ideally, if you have a manager who is also an engineer or a technical affine person, he or she might understand directly. But usually it's more like that. The manager does not have that deep insight of your engineer's affairs. And especially for the report, your audience is heterogeneous. Therefore, you cannot expect the same level of understanding at once. Let's have a look at the six ways how to fail. I have prepared an example situation to show you the failures in detail. Let's have first a look at the, at the example. Let's imagine you are in the wood and there is woodwork be done. So a tree has been cut it off with the motor saw, but the tree has taken a different direction when falling down, it has fallen onto a car. The problem was the car was placed irregularly at that, at that position. Due to the push, the smashed car has been slipped down the flank of a hill. Guess it has gotten a strong, a strong push from the side or from the top, and then it has gone down the flank. So the car is no longer visible. It's deep inside of the valley. Uh, therefore, a motor crane is needed to lift it out of the valley. But the fundament for the crane is not available, but must be built first. So, And there is a danger that all the liquids inside of the car might be dropping out. So oil and the cool fluid and anything else what's inside. So there is quite a strict danger. So this should be the example situation. Let's have a look at struggle number one. Go deep into details. If you want to be really sure that your explanation is not understood, then go deep into details. Come from 1 to 1000. Go 
every time very detailly inside of the situation. So in this example of the woodwork and the car, it would be essential to already explain the woodwork situation. So which area has to be has to be treated, uh, how thick the, uh, the trees are, who must be cut it off, who are the guys who are involved, and you get the idea. So it's every time details, details, details. You will lost your audience at once. So that's struggle number one, go into detail, details. Or go deep into details. Struggle number two, use an inadequate language. For example, abbreviations. Use abbreviations as often as possible, because everybody knows them well. <laughs> Do not say, for example, we used the Husqvarna 353 motor saw, but only say, we are using the 353. It must be sufficient, because everybody knows what 353 stands for. Or don't say, the motor crane, but say, MCW, for motor crane we hikle or any other crude um, abbreviation you have in mind. Or also another um, attitude of using abbreviation is use different abbreviations for the same issue. I have an example out of another area. I was, I was really puzzled as I heard it the first time. There is a serial bus. It's called the Rapid I.O. bus. But it has, as far as I know, at least four different abbreviations. It's the RIO for Rapid IO, when it's the Rapid IO, when it's the Serial Rapid IO, and the SRIO. You see, and the guys were all the time talking with different abbreviations, and I didn't catch the point. If you want to be sure that nobody is understanding you, use a lot of abbreviations and intermix the abbreviations, always uh, indicating the same topic. So we have already two strugglings. First, go deep into details. And the second one, use inadequate language, for example, abbreviations. The struggle number three is assume too much knowledge. For example, jump directly into the problem. If you have to explain the situation with the woodwork and the push-down car and the threat of the liquids of the car, then only talk directly about the oil threat. Don't mention anything before. That is something everybody must know already. Assume that the situation is already well known to everybody. Talk, for example, only about the slipped car, not about how it has come to the situation or about the threat with the oil and the liquids. Most important, do not spend any time to explain the situation. For example, already call the concrete builder to provide the fundaments for the motor crane. That looks really awkward for the others, but That's the problem of the others. So if they don't know what's going on, it should not be your problem. If you want to be sure that nobody is understanding your explanation, assume that the others already have knowledge or assume that they have already too much knowledge. That leads us to struggle number four. Drop facts and connections. So for example, there is the whole cause effect as I have already mentioned before. Cutting off the tree, falling on the, uh, on the car, uh, pushing the car down the flank of the hill, the needed a motor crane, but there is also the oil threat. If you want to be sure that nobody is understanding you, then only talk about the cutting of the tree and the tripping of the oil. Leave all the things in the middle out of your explanation. Struggle number four to be not understood is drop facts and connections. 
So we currently have struggle number one, go deep into de details. Struggle number two, use inadequate language. Struggle number three, assume too much knowledge. And struggle number four, drop facts and connections. Struggle number five is one of my favorites. It's be impatient if the listener does not understand initially. That means the very best to succeed here is do not summarize the situation, but explain only to the first person you met in detail and then reduce the explanation as new persons arrive. Spend less and less time with every new person's arriving. And also follow struggle number four with dropping off the facts and then be annoyed if wrong conclusions are drawn. So get really angry and impatient and annoyed if there is uh, statements which are not fully agreed or not fully aligned with the real situation. But don't explain anything more. Much better is that you reference to other persons who you have already told the situation. Don't repeat yourself in any way. So you will get a result like you have with the silent post game. Yeah, You're telling the story from one to the other without repeating it. Look what will be the end here. But it's a, for sure, it's a good way to struggle. And then finally, struggle number six. Assume that after your presentation or explanation, everything is clear and obvious for everybody. Thus, do not ask for open questions, but ask for actions and statements. Do not check that everybody has the same understanding of the situation, but simply let them go out and do something. Most likely and most important, do not let others summarize the situation, but insist on that things are going on. What are the six struggles that your explanation is for sure failing? First is go deep into details. Second is use inadequate language. Third is assume too much knowledge. Fourth, drop facts and connections. Five, be impatient. Six, assume that everything is clear and obvious. If you follow these six approaches, for sure, you will not be understood. Okay, that was satirical. I, I know, yeah, that, that was the intention. Of course, I assume that nobody has the real intention to let his own explanation fail. And that's the reason I have overdrawn this uh, description. My real intention is that you get aware of how to explain in a way that others can understand you, even you have a very complicated and, for example, very technical problem in front of you. Especially this kind of managers, as mentioned before, you have quality, cost and time in mind. You have to give them something they can translate it directly to that. And therefore, they need to understand what are the key facts of the situation. It must not necessarily be a problem. It could be also a situation or the environment or whatsoever, but something which is not intentionally understandable without further explanation. Let's have a look how it could be done better. In one word or in one sentence, it's all about storytelling. Let's start with the first one. Let's start with pictures. There is a saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's true for sure if the picture is good. But let's assume it's possible to make a picture, you can draw it in reality, 
Or you can draw it, for example, as a cause-effect diagram and show how bits are toggling or some, some very complicated technical construction is built. It's like the floor plan or the building plan of a, or the construction plan of a house. Of course, you can all describe that verbally, but if you have the plan in front of you, things become easier. If the plan is not too complicated because there are all details inside. Use pictures as often as possible, but don't overdraw it. Sometimes I have seen presentations with a ton of pictures. So following the motto, 10 pictures a second is also a movie, that doesn't succeed finally. There must be one or two or a bunch of pictures, but they must be they must be really indicative. They must be strong in their statement. And when you get it, and when you get the understanding. The other way around, and that's my preferred way to, if I have to explain things, is to use metaphors. A metaphor is a figure of speech that identifies something as being the same as some unrelated thing for a rhetorical effect. Highlighting the similarities between the two is essential for a metaphor. For example, I remember one time a situation that was, of course, a funny metaphor, but it was the questions, where are the priorities born? Yeah, who is controlling the priorities? Who is establishing them? You know the stories about Harry Potter and his uh, sorcerers and wizards. And when I said, I explained to them in a funny statement here that the priorities are somehow cooked in the very morning in a cauldron uh, by Harry Potter and his gang in a cave deep down under the building and we have very secret ingredients and we are, tall, uh, we are waving with our wands and we have a lot of spells and a lot of details which were not true but it made the things funny to indicate that uh, priorities are sometimes arbitrary that I really don't know how we are built at all. So it's out of my hands. That was the story of that. Even you understand and say, yes, that's a good idea. And I want to use pictures and I want to, when, uh, I want to have metaphors to explain. But the complicated thing is how to find matching metaphors. It's not that easy. And sometimes it's very easy to find them. It's more or less something, it belongs to open-mindedness. Let's have a look of how to find metaphors and pictures or comparisons for your explanation. First of all, what I regularly do is I look around. As I, I mean, I physically look around and look in my environment whether I find something which might be yeah, similar or at least a little bit comparable. It's very essential for a metaphor that you try to extract the pattern or the mechanism or the skeleton of the original issue and then look around of you, look somewhere else for the same situation. So you first need to have understood what is the real pattern of my problem which I want to explain to the other part. If you got the pattern, if you understand the skeleton, if you have the template in mind, when you will find a metaphor. Otherwise, if you don't have this abstract pattern in your mind, you will look for something very similar, very close, and that might prevent you from finding anything because very often your 
technical problem is exactly not available in your environment, in your surrounding at that particular moment. For example, I very often use natural topics as a base for my metaphors. For example, fruits or trees or animals and the forest or special techniques, sports or even mechanics or you use historical situations. You are absolutely free with your fantasy. The only thing that must be that must be stay in your mind is it must be the same pattern. It must be similar. It must be comparable. The topic you select must have a common understanding. That means you have to exclude politics. There is no way and no place for religion. There is no place for ethics. But an apple is an apple, independent where you are in the world. And therefore use very basic comparisons, very, very, very basic environments. Let's have some examples. I, I know it's it's rather complicated to do that in a general or in a in a theoretical manner. Let's have the situation I want to explain to someone what's a deadlock situation. I now assume that everybody of you is aware of and knows what a deadlock is. If not, yeah, when listen to the uh, to the explanation. A deadlock is in a in a short sentence A is blocking B is blocking A. What does that mean? Every time I'm riding on the road, driving my car, when I'm looking for metaphors, for, for sources for metaphors, and one is very easily uh, visible if you are driving a car and there are lots of cars in each direction. So, And if you are in a country which traffic is right-handed, so you are driving on the right lane. The Anglo-Saxons on the left side, but this one is on the right side. So you are driving on the right side. The opposite direction is on your left side. Then you are trying to turn to the left. So you have to wait until the opposite traffic has passed. But there are a lot of cars. And when a few cars behind of you, someone out of the opposite lane also wants to turn to the left. That means behind of you, there are a lot of cars waiting that you have turned to the left. And on the other side, it happens exactly the same. Behind of you, there is someone standing to turn to the left and all the cars are waiting behind of him. So you are waiting on the cars behind of the other left taker and he is waiting on the cars behind of you taking to the left or going to the left. This is a classical deadlock situation. Nobody can move anything more because you are blocking each other's. This situation, most likely everybody has already observed at least one time if driving in regular traffics. So this is a metaphor you can use to explain deadlock situations. Also, you can use it, and that's a benefit, for to explain how to resolve a deadlock. Regularly, a deadlock situation can be resolved by someone is stepping behind. Someone is, in that situation, in that metaphor, someone drives his car backwards, that there gets a, that we, that you get a gap, and then you can pass to the left, and therefore you resolve it. And then the cars behind of you could go on, and also on the other side, the other one gets his gap to turn to the left. Let's have another example about a metaphor and a problem. Race condition. A race condition is the behavior of a system where the output is dependent on the sequence or the timing of other uncontrollable events. I've just read that. That's the definition out of Wikipedia. So 
the race condition, it's regularly, you observe it in any electronics or software systems that sometimes something happens during runtime which have not been predicted. It was not predictable, but it is caused by the different behavior of the parts building the system. So that could be the software, it could be the hardware, whatsoever. But the race condition is something that only occurs during the race. Therefore, it's not named that way. How to explain that? It's rather complicated to explain a race condition because you don't observe that that well in daily uh, circumstances. One typical situation come into my mind. Imagine a big a big store, for example. Lots of people walking in different directions. Sometimes it happens, and you might have observed that also, someone is coming across you and standing directly in front of you, and this one is doing exactly the opposite moves contrary to you. So you are turning to the right, the other one is turning to the left. When you are going quickly to the left, the other one is going to the right. So, And when you are standing in front of you, and it looks like two pantomimes have met each other, so it's going back, forth, back, forth. Yeah, you get stuck in front of each other. This is also a race condition in daily in the daily world. And again, you can resolve that if you agree with each other. You have to face the other and you have to take contact and you get into communication with the other one and then you can resolve it. One of the most complicated metaphors I have used one time in business was it was a problem with the with a Linux kernel driver. And there was a double free inside of a kernel memory list. The kernel memory lists are organized as double linked lists. And we run into a problem because one of the elements was freed two times and there was um, a resource counter on it. And therefore it was no longer it was no longer in the list available. It was removed from the list, but it was still addressed by someone else, by another party, and when it comes to the crash. Double-linked lists are regularly something which are not observable in daily world. If I have to explain that to my family, it's quite complicated because we always say, for what do I need that? And it's regularly not like that, that you need it in, da in your daily world. And I introduced a metaphor that I said, we are looking at a train, a train with different wagons. And the wagons are coupled by a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, the previous wagon and the next wagon is registered. So every wagon all the time knows that he is connected with the predecessor and with the successor wagon. And the double bind now has meant, or the double free has meant that at the moment, the one of the load, I, ha I have used the resource counter as a load on the wagon, but the moment the load was reduced by one, it was still a part of the train. But when someone else comes on and removed the second and last part from the wagon, and when it got empty, and with the emptiness, the person who is organizing the trains has removed the wagon. But afterwards, someone else comes on and says, hey, exactly at that position, there is the wagon I regularly use, and he has taken the load, or he has put in the load in exactly the, the place where it was before, but now it was a different wagon because the original one was removed. So you observe this was a rather complicated metaphor to explain the situation. 
And I have had a lot of back and forth commentary about that and how to do it. And there were a lot of, lot of questions about, yeah, what about if it's not removed? Are there different trains? Is it like that and that? This is one, one thing um, which you have to take in mind if you are taking metaphors. Please be aware of there is no exactness. Take exactness only if it is really needed. The metaphor is about capturing the big picture. You need to understand what's going on or your, your listeners need to be un, uh, able to understand what's going on. In this example of a double-linked list, it was more the idea that you remove something which is afterwards then recognized as still existent and therefore something bad happens. But if you then continue, you get to the point where you see the metaphor is not matching perfectly to the origin, to the original problem. Of course not. It's not the original problem. I have had to put step-by-step step more exactness into the, into the metaphor and then you observe the limitations of the metaphor. So it, it means there is the metaphor finds its, its natural end. If you use metaphors, don't get stuck on a wrecked metaphor or a bad picture or at the wrong comparison. Change it. Look for a different metaphor. You might have to use two or three metaphors to explain the whole situation. Do not search for absolute correctness with metaphors. That's more or less impossible. The very best about metaphors is, if you have discussed a lot with your listeners or with the audience about this metaphor that they, and the other one tried to grab the understanding, finally they come to the point that we understand the real problem. Don't get trapped with the metaphor. Use the original example or the original situation as fast as possible. Let the listener phrase the situation. The intention, your goal is that your explanation becomes awesome. It should be an explanation the other one is really understanding. And that's the goal of that discussion. It's all about storytelling. You need to tell a story about your explanations and for your explanations. You will succeed much more when with the gory details. How do you have struggled with your explanations? Or do you have find your way to overcome them? What are your preferred approaches for explaining complicated issues? Or do you have a different strategy I have not even mentioned here? I'd love to hear from you. Please comment on the show notes at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 11. And let me know your experience, your thinking and what you're using and how you're using it. I'd love to hear from you. Please contact me. All the contact information is available at my website embeddedsuccess.com. And please remember to share with me your thoughts and your feedback by commenting on the show notes of this episode at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 11. Now I've given you some of the know-how and some of the ways to gracefully handle your embedded systems projects. It's time for you to take these details into your daily work for achieving your passion and finding success. I'm Georg Lohrer from the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. Thank you for listening.